Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we're in for a special treat because we're gonna talk about a very unusual event that I just attended at my office in Cape Coral, Florida in March of this year, but which is not too long ago. So it was uh, a, a dedication to a symbol of health freedom. And it's a, a, a vision that Barbara Lowe Fisher, who's going to be joining, had, had who's, who's joining us on the call. And she had this vision of putting this monument together as a representation of the battles and the, and the, uh, the movement that's been uh, precedent for the last four decades to support this action. And, and, and it's just an amazing, amazing uh, component. So Barbara's going to go into much more details on this and i'll let her do that because she's far more eloquent about this since it's it's her vision and it's just just a majestic monument and i'm so pleased it's actually on our our office location so welcome and thank you for joining us thank you dr marcola yes that was uh it it's been a long time dream of mine uh for many many decades actually to create a monument uh that honors uh, the casualties of one-size-fits-all mandatory vaccination policies, but also celebrate civil liberties and human rights. And the first human right is the right to autonomy and protection of bodily integrity. And if you don't have that right, if you cannot exercise that right, you can't exercise informed consent to medical risk-taking, which includes vaccine risk-taking. But there are a lot of monuments in Washington, D.C. to a lot of people in a lot of wars, and but there are no monuments to those who have followed policies and laws that are issued by government, whether it be federal or state, have followed those guidelines and then find out through personal experience that when it happens to you or your child, the risks are 100%. And we certainly have seen that in the last three years. I mean, those of us who have been doing this work since 1982, ringing the warning bell, that the mass vaccination system is flawed. It is uh, has become very corrupt. Uh, it is tied inexorably to the pharmaceutical industry. Unfortunately, government no longer really regulates the vaccines. Uh, they are completely partners. Pharma, big pharma, big, and the and the federal agencies are are partners, business partners. And so, you know, who, who are the ones that pay the price for uh, rushing vaccines to market, like the COVID vaccine was rushed to market after nine months of study? Uh, those mRNA COVID vaccines that were, that were not licensed, they're still for children. The COVID vaccines have not been licensed, fully licensed. So, it, it, you know, it was in 2019, after having had this dream for many years, it was in 2019 when I felt the noose being tightened around the necks of anyone who dissented from these mandatory vaccination policies. And that whole, what happened in 2019, as we remember well, 
was the World Health Organization in January of 2019 declared that vaccine hesitancy was a one of the top 10 threats to global public health. It was and a year that, before the pandemic. That was a year before the pandemic. And when that happened, you know, the feeding frenzy began with the corporate media uh, that went after anyone, uh, not only parents, but but very much focused on parents who were asking these questions and not wanting to to have to to, to obey the seventy two doses of seven of seventeen vaccines that children are now under the CDC regulations required to, to get. Uh, it, I, I knew I knew that something that if we did not do something to try to have to, to create a tangible physical uh, monument uh, that would would symbolize uh, freedom. Uh, autonomy, the right to protect bodily integrity, and also acknowledge and honor those who are casualties of these vaccination policies. Uh, I knew that that it was something that needed to be done, and so I started planning it. And I first envisioned it as a as a white marble uh, monument with inscriptions. I always knew I wanted the, a guardian angel to be part of it. But when I went down to Benita Springs to Fines Gallery and looked at all of the statues. I decided that the angel, the guardian angel of freedom should be made out of bronze because bronze is a strong, strong material. And so I had my daughter who's an illustrator. Uh, I, I, I described what I wanted and she drew this angel. Now, you know, the, the angel is bronze, silver bronze, standing seven feet high with a wing spread of nearly five feet and holding up in one arm, the torch, uh, the, the torch that symbolizes the light of truth, and then holds in the other arm a baby, which symbolizes the future of humanity. And the angel, of course, is reminds us of our duty to protect our children, who are our future. And so I then created behind the angel a marble, a, a, a circular sort of three arches. And on the, on the center arch is the inscription from the Bible the truth will set you free. And on either side it are quotes, your quote, your body was designed to stay well. You hold in your hands the power to take control of your health. Never let anyone take your right to health away. That's on one arch. On the other is uh, something that I've been saying for many years. If the state can tag, track down and force individuals to be injected with biologicals of known and unknown toxicity today, then there will be no limit on which individual freedoms the state can take away in the name of the greater good tomorrow. And that is a warning that if we do not take a stand right now for autonomy and protection of bodily integrity, we, we, can, we might as well resign ourselves to be slaves in an authoritarian state because we all know that's where it's going. And I'm so proud that it stands on this beautiful land that you donated in front of the Mercola Market with palm trees and green grass and flowers and water reservoirs with, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful setting. And I feel very sure that that guardian angel of freedom will be standing there for a long time. Yes, it was a, a terrific event. And, uh, you know, the, angel is holding a child in one hand, and that traditionally has represented most of the casualties in the vaccine 
tragedy that's been going on for centuries, but the vast majority have been, have been children. And these children have been gaslighted. And I don't think many of us knew what that term meant, but now we understand really well that their, their symptoms are dismissed. They're, they're told they are imagining these things and they, they're not real. The mothers, the mothers have been gaslighted. I remember well when I started this work in 1982 on DPT vaccine, the whole cell pertussis vaccine. One of the most, well, probably second only to COVID vaccine in terms of toxicity, but smallpox vaccine was very toxic too. I mean, the entire mass vaccination system, mandatory system is is predicated and based on the original vaccine, smallpox vaccine. And if you go back and look at that vaccine and look at the pioneers in the uh, 19th and early 20th century who who were protesting against mandatory use of smallpox vaccine, they were doing that because they were seeing what was happening to the healthy babies who, after they were vaccinated, were, were developing horrendous reactions. And yet they, you know, some very famous people, John Pitcairn in this country, Laura Little, whose, whose seven-year-old son died after smallpox vaccination. You had Dr. Wallace in, in Britain, who was a co-discoverer of a natural selection. Uh, he spoke out. There were scientists and doctors and mothers and activists speaking out. And, and what should have happened is there should have been the scientific study should have been done. There should have, there. Should, I mean, they, they were not done. They just kept pressing forward with everyone's got to get the smallpox vaccine, regardless of what their medical history was, regardless of whether they were sick or not. It was this one size fits all approach. And that is something that I have been talking about for four decades because I knew it was dangerous because we're not all the same. We don't all respond the same way to pharmaceutical products, certainly not to vaccines. And, and yet they refuse to individualize the policy. They just take a utilitarian for the greater good approach. And to me, that is immoral. You don't write off some people for the rest, especially when you're not doing everything you can to find out who they are. So I, I'm so proud of this, this monument because again, it's, it's about more than just the casualties of mass vaccination policies. It's, it's about fundamental human rights of which the right to autonomy is the first human right. It is. Yeah, thank you for reminding us of the word that the vaccines came from smallpox, the original vaccine. In fact, the word vaccine comes from the Latin word vaccinia, which I believe means cow or Mm -hmm. I think it does mean cow. So which is where the smallpox vaccine was derived from, from, from cowpox. So Technically, any the only vaccines out there are, are smallpox. The rest are immunizations. <laughs> well, you know, many years ago, I stopped using the word immunizations in the in the. You know why I did that? Because vaccines are products, are pharmaceutical yes. products, right? And the term immunization implies that you have an immune response that protects you. And Natural I for, that's right. And pertussis vaccine, I learned that vaccine, which was the first vaccine I studied, I learned. That, they, that there were many vaccine failures with pertussis vaccine. The whole cell pertussis vaccine was notoriously unreliable in terms of preventing infection and transmission, just like we're seeing with COVID vaccine. If you look at influenza vaccine, another vaccine, very, very low percentage chance you're going to prevent infection and transmission. It's, it's, it's widely known. So a lot of people, I think, have awakened in the last three years 
to this idea that, not idea, this fact that uh, vaccines do not reliably prevent infection and transmission, and they carry serious risks. Uh, I said in, in remarks I gave that day on March 25th, when we uh, dedicated the uh, Truth and Freedom Monument, I said that uh, that it's it's clear that these vaccines are not preventing infection and transmission. And it's clear with 1.5 million uh, reactions already uh, filed with the Vaccine Average Event Reporting System that it is the most reactive vaccine that we've ever used. So, And the casualties, unlike almost all previous vaccines, are not the children. They're really the, 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 the primary casualties are the adults with this, this time around. with this vaccine, for sure. Uh, of course, that's not always going to be the same. Uh, the I forget, it's, there is a comprehensive contagion, there, it's a CC acronym that was launched in October of last year. They at least the leaked of somewhat similar to what they did with the October 2019 uh, event 201. Uh, so that uh, infection was be, will be a virus. I think it's a rotavirus. No, maybe not rotavirus, but it's, resp it's a respiratory virus, an enterovirus, I think. No, that maybe it's an intestinal virus. It's an enterovirus, but, but it's targeting kids. So they're projecting one to 2 million deaths and 75% of them will be children. And they may launch that next year or the year after who knows it's, there's you know typically these tabletop exercises that they run to um sort of give a trial exercise as to what what the strategies they're going to use they they seem to be highly predictive of what actually happens so i you know i think there's a high likelihood it may uh, be materialized well there's a lot of talk about the h5n1 uh bird flu as well uh yeah, there are indeed. a number of mm, there are a number of viruses that potentially could be on that hit list. I mean, on the hit parade list. I just will never forget President Bush announcing, of course, based on his consultants and advisors, that 2 million Americans would die. Mm -hmm. 2 million Americans would die from bird flu. And mm -hmm. you know how many died from bird flu, right? Mm -hmm. Americans? No, I don't actually. A big fat zero. Oh, was it zero? It was okay. zero. Americans. Now, there were some people I that died across the world, but none in the, none in the U.S., and, and I was so enraged with that that I actually wrote a book, which was when the New York Times was letting me become a bestseller. So that was a New York Times bestseller. It was called The, the Bird Flu Hoax. Yeah. Uh, and they're trying to resurrect it 15 years later. You know, I think when I got really energized in 2019 to finally make this dream come true of creating this monument, um, I, I, I knew that these electronic tracking systems that really date back to the original uh, back to the measles outbreak in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And I was actually sitting on a vaccine advisory committee as a consumer member at, at, at uh, HHS. And I remember when that, that whole controversy came through that committee and quickly their solution was add another MMR shot, add another measles, bumps and rubella shot with no real study as to whether or not that is the solution really, they didn't drill down, or if they did, they weren't revealing what they found out to the public. But um, that is when they decided that they were going to create these electronic vaccine tracking systems to make sure every child under two got the measles shot. 
And they selected 10 cities and there were Hollywood celebrities who promoted these vaccine tracking systems in the 10 cities. And then the information came out that what they really planned to do was go to state tracking systems and then to a national vaccine tracking system and then to a global vaccine tracking system. They knew decades ago they were that was the plan. And so when I see the World Health Organization and all this talk about treaties that would make the World Health Organization the organization that every country in the world has to obey when there's a pandemic or a public health emergency involving uh, an infectious disease, which would of course take away our right in this country, in the States to oppose uh, mandates. I mean, a lot of people don't know that in this country, we defeated the COVID vaccine mandate. We did not have a COVID vaccine passport in this country because no state legislature voted for it. That was because we've organized in the states for about 12 years and educated legislators. But if they take, if they, if they do something that makes the United States part of a treaty that actually makes us be, have to obey what the World Health Organization says, we can't stop it. Yeah, because... Yeah, essentially the United States loses their autonomy, which has been the technocratic's wet dream for the most part, to have total control on a global basis. So, uh, but it is interesting to review what you have done and highlight some of these victories. Uh, I wanna, and maybe we can tangent it back down to my initial support of you, which I think was in 2008, 2009. 15 years you've been supporting 15 us. 15 years, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, at that time, interestingly, because uh, the event we had, uh, the, the dedication for the memorial you mentioned was interesting in that. It was a private, it was almost like a private event. It was private event. It was. And <laughs> it's a real testimony to the frugalness that you run your organization because you have a lot of volunteers. So the, any donations go to run the system and the infrastructure. Uh, and it, it's so frugal that it was the first time many of the people in the organization ever met face to face. You yeah. have the funds to put it all together. Yeah. So, um, what was also interesting that I've learned is that when I first started supporting your work, there were, you had six employees, <laughs> and now it's grown. Now we have uh, twenty-one, most part-time. Most of the employees yeah. are part-time uh, because we just, you know, we're we are a charity. We're a classic type of charity, uh, and uh, you know, it's because of your support uh, and 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 not only tangible support, but you you've carried our message uh, for fifteen years into your audience, which is an international audience. It's not just national, and this has been very very important. I hear from people from all over the world who have heard about MBIC through Mercola, your newsletters. Um, I, uh, it, it's, uh, this is a, you know, this is a war that we're in. It's an info world, information war. Uh, sure. Certainly you and I have been the target of a lot of criticism uh, for our, for our partnership and for what we're trying to do to educate the public about the fact that vaccines are not risk-free and the fact that you should have the human right to make an informed and voluntary decision about vaccination. That should not be controversial. 
that why that is something that can be subjected to the kind of censorship that you and I have been subjected to, especially since 2021, when NBIC was was taken off of all four social media platforms after our conference that we held online in 20 in the October of 2020, simply because we brought together scientists and doctors and bioethicists and theologians and, and people who were having a civilized conversation about these issues. We get punished. We first of all, they told lies. They said it was a private meeting when it wasn't. It was it was public a publicly promoted publicly promoted conference. It was just not just a pro. They said it was they lied. Not just it was a private meeting, but that it was a secret meeting. Secret meeting. <laughs> a secret meeting, like a conspiratorial secret meeting, right? Uh, but at any rate, beyond that, you know, demonizing, marginalizing, gaslighting. Uh, an organization, a charity that has been around since 1982 that has worked in state legislatures. I have sat on for more than 20 years on government and vaccine advisory committees. I have presented at the Institute of Medicine, National Academy of Sciences. I have tried to participate in government and in the systems to try to make the case that they needed to do better science. They needed to not throw people under the bus. You know, I mean, how immoral is that to, to, to just write people off as, as sacrifices for the greater good when they're not even doing the science to find out who those people are so their lives can be spared? My son was not an acceptable sacrifice. And I can tell you all the mothers I've worked with over the years, including the mothers who have just had their children hurt, they all say the same thing. And they feel guilty because they took their child in. They asked their doctors questions. The doctors told them, oh, safe, effective, don't, don't worry about it. And then they, their children regress and are never the same again. This is, a, this is the biggest scandal in the history of medicine. This mandatory vaccination laws that, that, and, and, this, and the medical system that refuses to acknowledge the casualties of that mandatory policy. Um, and I know as long as I'm on this earth, <laughs> I am not going to stand down. I am not going to be quiet because this this is a fight worth fighting. So in, in, in the effort to continue to have an effective uh, opposition to this, one of the things I wanted to mention that you lightly glossed over, and I think many people didn't catch it, but it was a profoundly important uh, milestone and achievement in that in the process, since we've collaborated, you were able to, to we jointly put together, but you're running it for sure, is the vaccine port portal, which allows the functionality of people to connect with their local community and, and actually participate in the legislative process to stop so many of these bills that just get uh, ramrodded through. And so why don't you summarize that? But then I want you to highlight in greater detail the high likelihood that this functionality is what prevented us from having vaccine mandates in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, that is so profound. I mean, that should be the headline. Well, it is. You know, uh, many years ago, I worked with Dawn Richardson when she was the head of an organization called Prove out of Texas. This is in the 1990s I met Dawn. And she wanted to get a, 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 a law passed in Texas that would allow people, parents, more flexibility in making vaccine choices. And we settled on a conscientious belief exemption to vaccination. 
I've always been a great proponent of the freedom to exercise conscience. I believe it is a fundamental human right. Uh, and conscience covers personal beliefs. It covers religious beliefs. It's a, you know, conscience is something we all are born with or should be born with. Uh, and, and, and the Let's ability, to it. <laughs> right. The, the ability to exercise freedom of thought and belief uh, is part of conscience. And so we decided on conscience belief exemption and seven years it took. And she was incredible, an incredible parent lobbyist down there in Texas. And I watched what she did down there. And, and then the, uh, the decade passed and it came up around 2009. You remember our conference in 2009, we gave you a visionary award, uh, the MBIC visionary award. Um, and I, th I thought to myself, I could feel the news tightening even then. And I, th I thought, let's let's see if we can do for the rest of the states what we did in, in Texas, what was done in Texas. So I asked Dawn to come on and she and her husband created a software program. We named it the NBIC Advocacy Portal. And what the idea, what, what this portal is, is an online communications and advocacy tool. You register for it. And by registering, it's free. By registering, you will get in your email box when bills are moving in your state that will either restrict or expand your right to make voluntary vaccine choices. So over the years, we've fought vaccine tracking systems. Uh, we have fought mandates. Uh, we, have, we have educated legislators about the need to protect informed consent rights when it comes to vaccination. So what's been interesting over since 2010 is when we first started, we had way more bills we opposed than we supported. And what we'll do is we'll tell, we'll give you guidance. When, when you're registered, you, you often get guidance on, on what you can say to your own state legislator about the bill that's moving through your state. And you will also be connected with your legislator with one click. You, you'll have all the contact information for not only your state legislator, but also a federal legislator. So it's a really neat little tailored communications tool. And uh, so at any rate, we began opposing most bills. Well, in the last five years, three, well, especially the last three years, okay, all of a sudden we're supporting more bills than we're opposing. Why? Because the legislators finally are figuring it out. And the state legislators are the ones responsible for making vaccine laws. Unless they have taken themselves out of the equation and turned over that lawmaking authority to health departments in the states, which a lot of the legislators don't want to take responsibility. So they'll say, well, we'll let our health department do that, you know, and they add the CDC recommendations to the required list, for example, like with COVID vaccine. Okay, what happened in the last three years? Because we had done all this work a decade ahead of the pandemic. <laughs> these legislators got it. <laughs> they looked at the, the, the science on these mRNA vaccines and they started asking questions. A great example is down here in Florida. Uh, Governor DeSantis uh, started to do his own research. <laughs> and when he started to talk to doctors who were, who were saying, hey, there's something wrong with this vaccine. It's not really a vaccine anyway, in the traditional sense. It's manipulating the cells of the body. So he started to ask questions. Other, other uh, governors and others started to ask questions. 
And we were able to successfully stop a COVID vaccine mandate in all the state legislatures and a COVID vaccine passport. You know how incredible that is? There's not one developed country that stopped a COVID vaccine mandate. They all mandated the COVID vaccine, but not- This was the only major country that didn't have it? To my knowledge, I don't know any other developed country that did not have, and I'll tell you why, because we are a constitutional republic. We're not a democracy. That is a big myth. We are a constitutional republic that democratically elects representatives at the state, local, and federal level. That's different from a democracy where the majority always rules. In our country, minorities have rights which limit the power of the majority. That is how our founders set up our government. One of the things they did was decentralize power. And states, since the beginning, have had authority over public health for the residents within that state, whereas the federal government makes national vaccine policy. But the only authority they have to mandate is for the people coming across the borders. They also have interstate commerce power, okay, If they really wanted to, they could try to stop people at the borders of states. They have not pulled that trigger yet. They can pull the trigger. They may well pull the trigger in the future. But right now in this country, vaccine laws are primarily state laws. Now, what did did President Biden try to do during the COVID pandemic? He tried to do an end run around the states. And he tried to say, well, we want all those corporations and employers who have more than, I don't know, was 100 employees or three? I can't remember. It the was number. 100, yeah. 100 to mandate the COVID vaccine as a condition for employment. That was challenged in the courts. You know, it kind of fell apart. It kind of fell apart. I mean, I kind yeah, of encouraged- through one of, one of the, the federal agencies. That, yes, he tried to get all the federal. Right. Yeah, it was the one that was responsible for controlling employment employers. I forget which one it was. It wasn't HHS. Yeah. But they but were a, there were challenges to it in the courts. Yeah. And it basically got cut, got shut down. I mean, he basically abandoned it eventually. So I mean, this is encouraging news, right? In our country. There were protests in our country. There were certainly protests in a lot of other countries where they did get that mandate. <laughs> but uh here in our country, we work through the system. And we stopped it. I'm a big believer in working the system. We have to get involved in government. And I've said this many times on the interviews that you and I have done. If we do not get involved in government at every level, from your city council to your school boards, to your county supervisors, to your uh, state uh, legislators, to the federal, we're going to lose our government to people who are getting involved and want to take our liberty away. They, they take, want to take our liberty by saying, if we take your liberty, we will promise you security and prosperity. And that has never been true in the history of the world. That has never worked. <laughs> you know, I don't believe in a collectivist society. And that is what they're trying to make us, rather than one that is built on foundational uh, civil liberties and natural rights. I think it was Ben Franklin who said, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. vigilance. That's right. Yeah. So we've got we've got to be vigilant. And thank you for providing a format where we can do that because it's it's not easy to do it by yourself. You really need a structure to do that. And obviously, there's no financial incentive for any organization to do this because there's there's no benefit other than helping people. So kudos to you for putting that together. And and you know you sensed 
a long time ago that, the, that, as you mentioned, that the noose was tightening and we needed to do something like this. And and uh, it probably saved a lot of lives just from the fact that we didn't have those mandates. You know, I had this premonition and I would speak in the 80s and 90s. I, I, I warned at the end of my speech that someday you would not be able to get on a plane, get an education, uh, enter a sports arena. Uh, you, you would not be able to function in society, hold a job, unless you got all the government recommended vaccines. And I've often said to people, I thought my children would be dealing with that scenario. I didn't think I would be alive to see it. And so when that happened, when this all went down in 2020 and 2021, I was in much as much a state of shock as, as many Americans were, were so confused, so stunned that they were able to successfully message to 80% of Americans who rolled up their sleeve and got a vaccine that was issued under an emergency use authorization, a vaccine that was, hasn't, wasn't licensed at the time. I, I was stunned, I guess, on some level that that they were able to accomplish that, but they weren't able to accomplish the mandate. And that is big. Well, they got the 80 percent, I believe, largely around two components. One was fear. So I don't know. It's certainly not 80 percent got all the boosters, but maybe got one, no. at least one jab. One but, shot. At but the one. other was a coercion, fear and a coercion. So you're going to lose your job. And people had to have a source right. of income to pay for their their home, their their mortgage payment, and put food on the table. And they really didn't have a, a choice. I mean, they felt they didn't have a choice. Everyone has a choice, but they felt they didn't. So coercion is another very powerful tool that they implement. Well, and of course, the, if you look at the Nuremberg Code, which was enacted after World War II by the Nuremberg Tribunal at the doctor's trial, and that was specifically uh, related to experimentation. It was about human experimentation and human clinical trials and that kind of thing. But it was adopted after after the doctor's trial. It was adopted universally as a standard in medical care that clinicians should be respecting the informed consent ethic that had been uh, defined at Nuremberg when they are treating their patients. Well, there are violations of that informed consent ethic all over this country. We have parents who are being thrown out of doctor's offices if they question even one of the 72 doses of 17 vaccines that doctors say they have to give their children. And they're being their children are being denied medical care. And organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics say it's perfectly fine to do that. That is a violation of informed consent. That is a human rights violation. So I, 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 this this monument that we've created is such a special space, as you know, having been there. It's a, it's a reminder to us. You know, it's a permanent reminder to us that we have to stand up for our human rights, of which the first is the right to autonomy and protection of bodily integrity. So. Anyone watching this should understand that this is not a private monument. This is public. It's a, a public you, monument. It was a private ceremony, a public monument. <laughs> yeah, and you you can go and actually visit it and take your picture in front of it. And I encourage you to do that because then you can visit our store, really the only major store that we have in the country, which is in our office in Cape Coral, Florida. Right. So uh, you, a lot of people can go and, you, and we have a cafe in the store too. So you can have a yeah, healthy, healthy food. 
So, um, but you can post it. We have a virtual monument on MVSC. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why don't you tell us how the virtual monument works? Right. A virtual monument on MVSC.org. And if you visit the physical monument in Florida, in Cape Coral, Florida, and take your picture in front of it, you can post your picture on the monument, share it on social media, and you can make a comment about how you either experience you've had or your child has had with vaccination or how you feel about liberty, how you feel about autonomy. So it's a space to to kind of uh, make your voice heard. That's great. Yeah, so you can participate more fully. And uh, but you know that that is a nice component, and it kind of somewhat serves to reinforce the community. But I think the the more important action, if you haven't done it already, is to participate in the vaccine advocacy portal because it made such a huge difference, and, and it continues to make. I mean, I'm just as you mentioned, it was a pretty shocking uh, turn in the, the number of laws that were introduced. It actually turned positive. Turned positive. So most of them were, were, were supporting uh, vaccine choice and the, the right to, to resist these mandates. It's a big deal. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm praying that, you know, the continued vigilance the continued engagement of families and doctors. We have many more doctors, amazing doctors who have stepped forward during this pandemic have joined you in in terms of being voices, urging caution, questioning the science that needs to be questioned. Uh, This is very hopeful as well to me because when we first started out in the 80s, oh my goodness, the doctors were petrified of stepping on a line. We had a few brave doctors who did stand with us. And by 1997, we held the first international public conference on vaccination and then had, we've had five now, but you know, they, they don't want to talk about those gatherings of scientists and physicians and parents joining together and, and taking a stand about the shoddy science that underpins these, these public health policies. I mean, that to me is one of the most shocking aspects is that the science is really bad. It's it's not methodologically sound, not the epidemiological studies or the bench science, the biological mechanisms studies, which is what we really need. What happens in the human body at the cellular and molecular level when you inject these vaccines into children, sometimes 10 or 12 vaccines on one day? What happens in the bodies of those children to their immune function, to their brain function? What happens to their DNA? There's none of that. Why? Because the public-private partnership between the pharmaceutical industry and the government is preventing those studies from being done. So what do we have as citizens? All we have is the ability to make sure we have informed consent protections in these vaccine laws. And, you know, another thing that that donations support, and we have four websites. That's more than a lot of organizations have. We have NVIC.org that's been in operation since 1995. One of the first websites put up around the time the CDC put their website up that, that messages on vaccination and diseases. That's, that's when the web started. It was 90, in the mid 90s, really. 95. It existed technically right. like a little early 90s, but it wasn't widespread until about 95, 96. We jumped right on it. Yeah. And, then, and then we have uh, the advocacy portal at nbicavacy.org. But we have the, the vaccinereaction.org, which we started in 15, 2015. And we have medalerts.org, which actually started in 2003, but NBIC started sponsoring in 2006. 
And that is a user-friendly search engine for the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And we've actually upgraded that and are adding new features to it, continually adding new features to it. So if you want to search for what vaccine reaction reports look like, you can go on metalerts.org. So our our reach is, uh, is, is expanding. And that's because of our donor supporters. And of course, of you, you have been a, a, an amazing benefactor for us for 15 years. So I, I have, I'm hopeful about the future. I believe more people are waking up and, and it's just a matter of people becoming engaged and not feeling paralyzed or hopeless or feeling like they can't do anything to stop the tsunami. It's, it seems daunting sometimes, but you can make a difference in your community. You can do something every day to educate somebody about this issue. Oh, that you can make a difference. And yes. I'm wondering if you can comment on the, your, the shift that, or the impact that COVID-19 has on this fight and, and the influence it's had on waking up a larger percentage of the population and maybe get your estimates on that because it seems that most of the vaccine injuries prior to then were they were relatively minor in number. So they were very easy to be marginalized and dismissed. And they were in, in spades. But when they leveled it up with the COVID jabs, many, I mean, it's exponentially worsened. So in, in my view, it seems that the, the silver lining of that process is that people started, more people started to become awake as to the, the serious, serious concern here. Well, and I so, have a little and, bit and com- different comment on that, but then also comment on the number of people that woke up to COVID. How many extended that concern to the other vaccines, all the childhood immunizations? Okay, so I have a little different take on on the numbers of reactions to the other vaccines. Okay, that if you go back and because I wrote co-wrote a book, DPT a shot in the dark in 1985. I really did a deep dive with Dr. Coulter, who is my co-author, into the medical literature. And back then, we had to take quarters to the Library of Medicine and find studies in the in the stacks. Could not and, search it. And yeah, Xerox them. Yeah, that's for sure. There was no internet. And so it was a well, it was just research. No, the internet was there, but it was it was very expensive back then. And the early internet started in the late 60s. Oh, well, I, I didn't yeah, know yeah. that. I, I was online in the early 70s. Oh, were you uh, really? But, but you, you had to pay for it. It wasn't free. I mean, you had to yeah. pay for every minute you were online if you were accessing National Library of Medicine. Yeah, yeah. No, it was it was an interesting research. But And, of course, books. I could go to college college bookstores and, and buy books on uh, immunology and, and on pertussis and all that. And then the government had some documents, too. But at any rate... I interviewed over 100 mothers whose children had re- had regressed into poor health after DPT shots. And so I knew, even with the medical literature that we had, that, that I would say 70 to 80% of the children who were getting DPT shots were having some kind of reaction. There were a lot of reactions occurring. There are still a lot of reactions occurring to DTAP, and which is a purified, less reactive vaccine, but it still can cause brain damage. It still can cause encephalitis. Um, And the other vaccines, MMR, hepatitis B, Hib, Gardasil. I mean, there are a whole host of vaccines that all have side effects. So I believe that that the, the problem was is that the doctors were dismissing those side effects as not associated. 
they were telling the parents that it was just a coincidence that those that had that, that their child's regression had nothing to do with those symptoms of those vaccine reactions. So I believe there were a lot of reactions occurring and have been occurring, but they have been reported or acknowledged. Now, what happened in COVID? Because there was such a because they accompanied the COVID outbreak with these draconian lockdowns and the masks, masking and the social isolation and crazy policies. There was some unbelievable stuff coming out of public health uh, departments all over the world. Of what beyond comical, beyond comical, <laughs> beyond it, it's uh, some of it you can't even it's X rated and you can't even talk about it. It's that bad. So, you know, anyway, um, I saw it and I said, I, I said to myself, this, they've gone too far. They finally overstepped mm-hmm. and they did. And what happened was everybody in the whole world had time on their hands as they were isolated to go to their computers and start doing research on the Internet <laughs> and think about the fact that they were hunkered down in their homes and they couldn't go out with a about something impeding their breathing when they went outside. And and what happened was they had to think. They had to think about it. And as the more they thought about it, then then came the mandates, or not the mandates, but the policies that you couldn't hold a job or you couldn't go into, you know, whatever. They said, wait a minute, let's see more. And we they educated the public health officials by their overreach, actually educated the people about vaccine risks. And then what did they do? They found out about VAERS. We, we kept promoting the fact you can report to VAERS. And so did a lot of other groups. And people started reporting to VAERS. And by the hundreds of thousands, they were reporting to VAERS. And guess what? That is only the tip of the iceberg because less than 1% of reactions are ever reported. In fact, there's there are cases now where healthcare workers were punished for having reported to theirs. They were actively discouraged from reporting, which is a violation of the federal 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, which requires doctors and healthcare workers to report adverse events after vaccination. So no, what if, no penalties for lack of compliance to that. No, there's no actual, they, that was the one thing we couldn't get. We got the safety provisions, we couldn't get the punishments. They couldn't get so no 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 enforcement, but that's was by design. It seems yeah, they just wanted it to look good. Yeah, and then we and eventually and gradually erode most everything, all the beneficial components of that. Yeah, so, there was an erosion from actually the year one uh, when the law was passed. Doctors could still be sued for medical malpractice for failing to adhere to contraindications to vaccination, uh, and they within a year the the, the physician lobby. Uh, got that amended so that they had no liability, which was huge. And then, of course, in 2011, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down design defect. So when the law was passed, you could still sue drug companies for design defect, which if it was still in effect, we could sue uh, Pfizer and Moderna for the mRNA design defect. But because didn't the the PrEP Act trump that, uh, though? Well, the PrEP Act... You know, you're right. The PrEP Act did, 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 but it would still be on the books. In other words, the PrEP Act came in and yes, gave the the companies liability protection and anyone who gives the vaccines liability protection. But if we still had design defect on the books on the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, that would be extremely important at this point. 
but it's not. <laughs> they took it away. No, they took it away, which was a was a, a complete in the same week that the Supreme Court took away design defect from uh, liability from the manufacturers of vaccines. They held the car manufacturers liable for seatbelt design defect. Okay, what? <laughs> I mean, it shows the power of the pharmaceutical industry and medical trade. And, and who testified in the Supreme Court on behalf of pharma? The agencies, the Department of Health, the government sided with pharma against this child who had been injured by DPT vaccine in Brucevitz versus Wyatt, of which MBIC was a, had an amicus brief but they sided against the people and for the industry. And so here we are, where you're mandated to go to school or some, and to hold certain jobs, you have to have a whole battery of vaccines. And yet nobody is held liable in a civil court of law if you're harmed. That's so wrong on so many levels. And you know, what's really important to remember about that, what happened back then, is that what was the argument pharma made to government? Why they should be given complete protection from civil liability for vaccine injuries and deaths? They said, we should not be liable because the FDA licenses the vaccine as safe and effective. The CDC makes national vaccine policy recommending the vaccine as safe and effective. And the states mandate the vaccine for school entry. If if it's going to be a mandated product that's passed all those 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 um, hoops, you'll jump through. We jump through all those hoops with FDA and CDC. We should not be held liable. The mandates are the issue. We have to free ourselves from these chemical chains. You know, it's in my view. If you want to use all the vaccines the government recommends, that's your business. Yeah. That's your right but don't force other people who've come to a different conclusion to, to obey a one-size-fits-all policy that can clearly injure and kill some people. Not so do you think Do you think the time that people had during the lockdowns to more carefully reflect on this radically increased the number who were opposed not just to the COVID jab, but all of the childhood immunizations? I believe- Or at least question them. Yes. I believe, I actually believe that at this point, more than 50% of people in this country are questioning vaccines because when people think of a vaccine, like the COVID vaccine, and they come to the conclusion that it wasn't tested properly, uh, it was rushed to market, uh, they didn't, they hid the, the, the risks, they certainly didn't tell the truth on the fact that it doesn't prevent infection and transmission reliably. They didn't tell that truth. They, they, they see the word vaccine and then they go, oh, my doctor wants me to get that flu, flu vaccine or my, my doctor, the doctor wants me to give my children vaccines. Wait a minute, maybe I'll take another look. And well, they should. Vaccine is the vaccine is the vaccine. Some vaccines are more reactive than others but all vaccines carry risks that can be greater for some people than others. And that's why you have to have the right to make an informed and voluntary decision. And that's what that monument's about, defending that right. You've been doing that for 
over four decades now. This is our 41st April of 2023 is our 41st year. World is a better place because of it. And, you know, though I, many, many millions of people appreciate all the effort you and your organization has done. And it's not just you, it's a whole team that you have. And it was yeah. just really terrific to connect with some of them down there and, and uh, see who's, who's supporting you to implement this. Because there's a lot of people in the trenches that believe just as strongly as you do to carry your mission and to, to fight this at the legislative level. And I think that's probably... You know, there's two take home messages here. One is that you can make a difference by just participating. You know, times are hard and they're going to be harder financially. So if you can't help support this process, that's fine. But you can support it with time and participate in the, the legislative process. And that may be even more important because ultimately that's what we need to, to ha- at least have some wins in this area. And and at least slow down what many times seems to be the inevitable crushing that's coming towards us with respect to global mandates that we have no uh, sovereignty over to control. Uh, But uh, so that's one thing you can do. And if you can, if you have the resources, then I would strongly encourage you to consider financially supporting NVIC as I have for the last 15 years and probably one of the best investments I've ever made to know that you make a difference. You can. You can make a difference every day. You can do one thing to, to help spread the word. You can talk to a friend. You can talk to a family member. You have to have courage because it's a hard issue to talk about when people have been so entrenched in, in, in viewing vaccines in one way. But we've made huge progress, Dr. Mercola. We really have. And a lot of that progress has been made in the last 15 years. And I, I, I'm eternally grateful. And um and so proud, as I said, that the monument to truth and freedom is is on the property down down in Cape Coral, Florida, in front of Mercola Market. It will. Where it will be protected. Where it will be protected. <laughs> right? Of course it will be, as best we can. I mean, it's in one of the best states in the United States. This is Florida. And weather is probably one of the best areas in all continental U.S., southern yes. Florida. Northern Florida gets a little cold in the winter, but Southern Florida, not so much. The unfortunate thing is that we do get hurricanes and as many know our- Well, indeed. And that that actually delayed our dedication. Uh, yeah, because it was supposed to be dedicated last year. Last but November. We, yeah. we had essentially a Cat 5 hurricane and you live not too far from our office. Yeah. So we were part of it. In fact, you sheltered in our Mercola market. At the last the minute, I made, a, I made a run as the hurricane was- approaching my husband and I made a run to the market where we knew there were it was a commercial it was we knew it'd be safe and I, I I'll never forget that night I mean I'll never forget it and uh yeah it was because we live on a canal and we didn't know how high the water was going to they were talking about a 15 foot surge which would have been over our roof and so anyway there's so many reasons to be grateful to be associated with you um and I'll like I say um uh, I, I feel that you're a bulwark. You know, you're, you, you've you taken a stand and no matter what they've thrown at you, no matter what they have tried to do to you, you've never wavered, you know? And I, so I feel a kinship with you because I understand what it is to stand there when you're being constantly battered and, and then just say, you know what? I'm not going to move. So it's, well, a, it's a great partnership. 
I couldn't agree more, but the time to capitulate and surrender is really at the beginning when you have a lot more to lose your credibility, potentially your job, you know, and in some ways it was really, really easy for me to do this because I, I'm, I mean, they tried to mess with me financially and take my bank accounts and stuff. And, but I have, I, I am not dependent upon a federal agency or a hospital or anyone to, to employ me. You know, I'm basically supported by the people that subscribe to the newsletter and that support has allowed me to be vocal and independent from, from all these areas. And, and really, you know, it's, it's sad because most physicians do not have this luxury. I mean, they have huge personal responsibilities to their family and themselves to take care of them. And, and you know, that, you know, a lot of them have chose not, to, you know, to take that step, but I can completely understand when they don't, because it's very, very hard and dangerous. And, you know, fortunately it's, it's really easy for me to do that. And so I, I'm just, very excited and privileged to be able to do that. And it was actually pretty easy. <laughs> so, you know, I'm going to turn around now after I've been identified as the primary supporter for the anti-vax movement, <laughs> vilified and discredited. It's, to me, it's the biggest badge of honor, you know. You know, what's so interesting is from the very beginning, including back in the in the 19th century, it was against mandatory vaccination. It, it, that was the issue, not it wasn't, they were, we are, they were opposed to forced vaccination, just like I am. And so this, this, this label that they're trying to give to everybody doesn't allow for any nuance. It doesn't, it, it makes the black or white pro or con rather than having the discussion that needs to happen. They don't want that discussion. They just want to label people, demonize people, marginalize, gaslight people. So the discussion cannot be held about what the really substantive issues are. And there are really substantive issues. This system could be reformed. But if you have mass vaccination as a centerpiece, as a centerpiece of preventive health, which is what it is in this country, there's almost no other public health interventions, only vaccination. You've got a system that's right, that is, can be corrupted and has been corrupted. And the people have been set up for exploitation. And the only way we can get free of that exploitation is, as you point out, to take action at our, in, in the state level and wherever we can to protect our freedom. And so, you know, you got to get out from behind your TV and get out of your house and go make appointments with your legislators and with your community leaders and not be afraid to have the conversation. If we remain afraid to have the conversation, nothing will change. Yeah. You're, you're, the, the, the last 15 years has been a very powerful testimony and demonstration of what can be done. So the more the people unite together and you, you create the tools already, it's not like you have to even make this thing up. The tools are there. All you need to do is participate. That's so right. I would encourage you today to participate in, in the legislative process so that you can make a difference like the you know, people who already are doing that and then financially support the organization if you can. So, uh, all right. Well, any more comments you'd like to make? No, I think we've covered a lot of territory, as we usually do. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. So, yeah, thanks for everything. And we look forward to another 15 years. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dr. McCullough.